Hi, I'm Corey Nathan, and this is Talking Politics and Religion Without Killing Each Other. Your home for edifying, provocative, and fun conversations among high-profile public figures and regular folks like me. We talk about faith and politics and all kinds of topics that really matter in our culture. So if you're tired of all the screamers out there taking all the oxygen out of the room and you want to join us and taking some of that space back, you'll love talking politics and religion without killing each other. Thanks for spending some time with us. Enjoy today's show. Welcome, welcome, welcome. We are talking politics and religion without killing each other. I am your host, Corey Nathan, and so grateful to have a place to talk about faith and politics and big ideas in our culture with all kinds of interesting, accomplished folks of goodwill and good faith. And if you appreciate what we're doing here, I'd ask you to consider supporting us on Patreon. It's really easy to find us, patreon.com slash politics and religion. The end is spelled out, patreon.com slash politics and religion. It's how we keep the lights on, and it really helps us continue to have conversations like the one we're having today with David Clary. David Clary is an award-winning author and news editor at the San Diego Union-Tribune. Clary's latest book is Soul Winners, The Ascent of America's Evangelical Entrepreneurs, which we'll be discussing at length today. His previous book, Gangsters to Governors, The New Bosses of Gambling in America, explores how and why states have encouraged and promoted the expansion of legalized gambling in America, uh, widely awarded work, uh, his his last book, as I'm sure this one will be too. And interestingly, that book on, on gambling in America was cited five times in the U.S. Supreme Court's uh, majority opinion that struck down the federal ban on sports gambling in May of 2018. Before joining the Union Tribune in 2002, David worked in a variety of editing and design roles at the Plain Dealer in Cleveland. He is a native of central New York and studied journalism and poli sci at Syracuse University in Orange Man, but we won't hold that against you. <laughs> David, thanks so much for joining us. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks so much, Corey, for having me on. Yeah, yeah, you bet. So before we get into the book, I have lots of questions. Um, I did want to ask you about your dad, Hal Clary. Uh, you describe how, as a kid, you'd often get into conversations, sometimes disagreeing, but never disagreeable, as he said. Um, is he the one that inspired you to get into journalism and spark your interest in politics and social issues? Yeah, uh, and, I, and I love this podcast because this is exactly like our dinnertime conversations. It was we talked about religion and politics, the two things you're not supposed to talk about, <laughs> in, at, you know, and around the dinner table. Uh, but my dad was uh, fascinated by politics. Um, he, he he had a, a library full of presidential biographies and uh and we just we love talking about it we disagreed uh you know at times and um, he also was a man of faith um i was actually i'm not an evangelical i was i was raised catholic and my dad was a a devout catholic so we discussed uh you know the, the catholic faith and and we also had disagreements about that um so so religion and politics was always intertwined uh, in in our household. I mean, that, that that was something we talked about all the time. Not only my immediate family, but my extended family, uh, who are mostly Republicans, and I'm not. Um, I'm not. I'm not a Democrat either. I'm I'm uh, not part of a party, but I would often uh, like to debate people, uh, my my family, about uh, politics and their points of view. And yeah, and we you know we never. Um, it was it was never uh, disagreeable you know we we would just uh 
agree to disagree at, at, on certain points and move on. So I think that that's always been with me. And I think working as a journalist for you know 26 years now, uh, politics is is so embedded in what we do uh, every day. And so I, I I mean, I read dozens of stories every day about uh, American politics and I've continued to, I mean, I'm a Catholic uh, to this day. I still go to church, but I've always been interested in, uh, in evangelicals. My, my grandmother actually um, uh, was Catholic and she became a Pentecostal. And when I was eight years old, I went with her to a Pentecostal service and my dad wasn't too thrilled about that, but um, <laughs> but I was just I was just curious because we talked a lot about the Bible and Jesus and the afterlife and and I just was so fascinated by that. So we went, you know, she took me to this Pentecostal church and it was charismatic and it was speaking in tongues and there was everybody got handed a tambourine and we're all playing tambourines. This is, it was very unlike any Catholic service you'd, you'd ever go to, and uh, I was really struck by the emotionalism of the service and. Uh, how dedicated everybody seemed, you know, just in some, when you go to a Catholic service, it's very uh, regimented and very, everybody's very quiet and there's a certain order of things and you're not, you're not to raise your voice. (laughs) But uh, uh, so that, that always, that that always stuck with me, that experience going to that church, just um, seeing it firsthand, uh, the, the, uh, the, the, the real um, dedication that um, that evangelicals have. And unfortunately, my grandmother passed away about a year or two after, so we, I didn't get to go to many more services with her. But um, so I've always been in, I've always been so fascinated by religion and why people believe in what they believe in and, you know, the effect it has on the public square. You know, private beliefs, religious beliefs do have an effect on the public arena. So uh, the intersection between the religion and politics has just always been a fascination for me. Yeah. Yeah. No, we'll certainly get into that. And your your book is is a great investigation into how the two intertwine, um, not just here in recent history, but over the course of the, the history of the U.S. But I, I wanted to ask you something else. It looked like I, I was trying to date your career, and it looked like you were getting specifically into newspaper journalism, just as that part of the industry was really being challenged and like everything was going online. I'd love for you to tell us more about your own professional journey and how you've been able to navigate like those ups and downs of the business over the last 20, 25 years. Yeah, there, 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 have, there have been many ups and downs. That's a great, <laughs> that's a great question. And uh, ever since I was little, I was always interested in, uh, I always liked to read the New York Times when I was in middle school. I remember one of the very few kids that, uh, you know, that is interested, was just fascinated by newspapers and Time Magazine, we got that at the house, and um, and I, and I really ever since I was in high school, all I all I wanted to be was to work in journalism. That's all I wanted to do, and I've been been I'm fortunate. I'm one of the few that I've been I've been able to do that my entire career. And unfortunately, I've gone we have gone through many rounds of of layoffs and buyouts and ownership changes. So that it's been a it's been a real um, rocky road. Um, I and I, and also I've been with the same newspaper now for twenty years, which is unusual. So yeah, I mean, I, you probably, I could write a whole book about uh, the, the, maybe my next book would be about the, about the, change, the, the changing uh, business of journalism because you know there's a lot fewer journalists now, and uh, you know, I, and I think we get into this you know, journalists generally they, they they see this career as a calling. You know, it's it's it, it, in a way it, it might be similar to religion. You know, people why they get into religion. I think people journalists really feel like this is a calling. They, you know, we could be doing other things with our career and maybe find a career that's more stable and has better hours and better pay. 
for many of us, but uh, I think we do it because we think it's, you know, it's a mission, you know, for us, it's a mission for us to, to uh, pursue the truth and with fairness and with rigor. You know, that's really what all, all I've ever wanted to do. And, uh, you know, that's, <laughs> that's all I really know how to do. So, yeah. <laughs> um, and then writing these books is uh, just something I, I, I've been an editor my whole career and, and, um, but I've always loved writing ever since I was little. And this gives me an opportunity to, you know, to do writing on the side and, and um, have, um, you know, and, and exercise that part of my brain. And, um, and I enjoy researching, I enjoy doing interviews. And that's just not something I can, I do, you know, my, in my actual job. So, um, so this has been a, been a great way for me to explore, you know, explore more of my, my, my abilities and, and, and strengthen my abilities. And especially I worked on this Soul Winners, uh, uh, I wrote a lot of it during the pandemic when there was nothing else to do. I had um, <laughs> I had a fair amount of research already done. I had started writing it, uh, but you know, the, <laughs> the easiest thing to do in the world is to find an excuse not to write, and yeah. uh, there's always because there's always something going on. I have a family, and you know, there's always a, a game to go to or a, some errand to run. But uh, when the pandemic hit, there was there really was nothing else to do. You know, just you're home all day, other than the taking a walk around the neighborhood. So I, I actually got a lot of writing done. It was one of the few things I could control. You know, during the pandemic, because so much was out of our control. You know, what what, what stores were open, what work wasn't open. You can, I, you know, I had to work remote. So it's um, so it was something I could control, and uh, and it, and it uh, kind of saved me in a way. I think mm. to have some, something to concentrate on. Some people learn how to how to bake sourdough bread, you know, other people learned, you know, kind of rediscovered some of their hobbies because, uh, you know, it was, it was an opportunity where the, everything slowed down and you're able to, you know, concentrate on something that you could control and enjoy. Yeah, for sure. For sure. So, okay. So the, the book is soul winners, the ascent of America's evangelical entrepreneurs. So first, can you just describe for us what an evangelical entrepreneur is? Sure, and it, 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 there's many ways of looking at evangelicals. I mean, it's such it's such a large, complicated yeah. group, and I think I think a lot in, in the media is to blame for some of this. I think sometimes we do oversimplify evangelicals and just see everybody as one big block. And it's it's a very complex, diverse um, group. I mean, you've got uh, you, you have very very, very different traditions and, uh, and styles. Uh, the, the way I kind of see. And like I said, there's many ways you can look at it. Like some, I've seen, there's been a lot of books written about looking at evangelicals through the prism of race you know, or through the prism of politics or gender. Um, and those are all really good ways of approaching it. And I, I just felt like the more I studied evangelicals, the more I, the more I could see that they were really at the core of them, they're really entrepreneurs. Many of them are not denominational. You know, they strike out on their own. Um, they're they're often they're left to succeed or fail on their own, like a, like any entrepreneur is, and they take chances. They develop their own uh, order of service. They don't have to. Many of them don't have to answer to a to a higher authority. In America, is a, is is such a an entrepreneurial culture in our constitution. We do not we do not have a, an established religion, unlike unlike other many other countries. So that really gives an opening to people, to entrepreneurs who are able to find a market and then, and then uh, cater to it. And that's what evangelicals have done so well, you know, in, in the, in the whole course of American history. So that, that really, that really stuck out at me as like, I think it, I just really thought it could be helpful to look at, look at evangelicals through their entrepreneurial lens and that, 
and that and that once I did that, that a lot of these pieces started to fall into place for me, and, and a lot of things make sense. You know, when you're when you're when you're an entrepreneur, you're very individualistic, and you're you 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 strike out on your own, and you you're sometimes suspicious of collective action, and you know you're you're very much of a you pull yourself up by the bootstraps kind of kind of mentality, and that's and that's and it's very uh, close to the heart of evangelicalism. You know, evangelicals have a very individual relationship with Jesus. That's a that that's a, a strong strain that I see in it. Um, so I just thought that was a very useful way of um, of understanding understanding the movement and you know where it's going. So, but by any chance, did you read Pete Weiner's account of? Um... Uh, it just he just it just came out yesterday. There, there's like this tour that Michael Flynn is the main speaker. The, the reawaken tour. Yes. Yeah. I I I have I've read about the tour and I have read Pete's work on you know recently. Yeah. So uh, so if you're so it was not wasn't necessarily about Pete's um yeah a piece about it, but but the 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 tour itself. As I was reading your book, I I read um uh, Pete's uh, piece about it, and it just struck me that. This is today's version of a lot of what you described, even going back to, you know, uh, Dwight Moody, uh, you know, a couple right. hundred years ago. Uh, but this is this is some uh, some descendant of that. This is what we have today. So that, that's why I asked you about it. Yeah. Yeah. No, there, there are definitely historical echoes. And that's one value of looking, you know, looking at the whole history of a movement. It's yeah. Like, a lot of these books start out, you know, in the, in the 70s or the 80s and the Reagan era. Or they just focus on the Trump era, and and I think you really need to go back a lot further. And you and what, when you do that, you do you do see a lot of those historical echoes, where you see someone like what you mentioned, Dwight L. Moody, Billy Sunday. You know, the, the, Billy Sunday was popular a hundred years ago. Yeah, and, and 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 when you read, you know, his sermons and, and his approach, it, it's uh, if you if you put a thumb on his name, you would think it would be it could have been a it could be a modern day prosperity gospel preacher. I mean, there's, there's, and he's, he was extremely, uh, very pro-American and very in, individualistic. And he, 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 uh, he didn't like social service. Uh, he, he actually yeah. was, was anti, uh, and then if you go after Sunday, many of these, uh, conservative preachers were very against the new deal. They were against the great society. They were against a lot of the civil rights uh, movement legislation the 60s and um and, and you really see the you see the threads as you as you go forward you know there was a large uh, jerry fall was at the vanguard of the you know a very anti-gay movement in the 1970s and, and into the 80s and, and then now you're seeing uh and you saw the fights against the same-sex marriage and then and now you're seeing the fights against the transgender rights i mean these things that just just echo throughout history and they just they take some different labels but they're the same thing yeah, it's yeah. The, it's the same message that gets recycled, you know, generation after generation. I just found that so fascinating. Well, to your point, you had me right out of the gate. The epigraph uh, is from uh, Billy Sunday, who's uh, right. He's a leading event for listeners, leading evangelist yeah. in the early 20th century. Uh, so he said, there is but one rule, win souls for Jesus. Any tax, this is the, this is what is so gripping any tactics that produce the general result are good tactics um a good is wrought therefore the methods employed cannot be wrong and it really um yeah. so that that's what he said and it really resonated later in the book you recount something that uh, franklin graham 
was talking about. I think it, I, I might be wrong about this. I think it was in response to somebody who was asking him about January 6th or what was it? Um, oh, no, it was pandemic. It was um, he, he was responding to something about pandemic where, OK, we'll set up tents uh, in New York City. But people who work there have to affirm their their faith in Jesus Christ and certain affirmations, even about about uh, gay marriage or something like right. that. Yeah, Franklin Graham is such a fascinating character. Uh, I went to a uh, one of his rallies uh, in San Bernardino last year. Thousands of people attended, and uh, he, he has such an interesting uh, dichotomy where he he does a lot of. There's no question he does lots of good work. He's in charge of Samaritan's Purse, uh, which is what you're referring to in New York City. They do work all across the all across the globe. You know, and. Uh, when when there's a disaster, a natural disaster, they're there. And uh, so there's no question he does good work. But then there's the other side of him that's there's there always seems like there's a string attached to that, yeah. you know, that, OK, I'm doing this good work. But uh, if you don't, you know, if you don't sign this declaration that you're opposed to same sex marriage, then you can't volunteer, and uh, you know, during this crisis, this the COVID-19 crisis. And he's also extremely political. Uh, you know, you, you see him on Fox News, you see him and he's, he's an ardent uh, conservative. And it's interesting when you contrast him with his father, um, who was also he was very close with Eisenhower, a Republican, but he also was very close with Lyndon Johnson, a Democrat. But Billy Graham was was burned very badly during the Nixon years. He was caught on tape making anti-Semitic remarks. Yeah, he he. he uh, you know, he clung to Nixon until the very, very end of Watergate. And he and Billy Graham really stepped away from uh, partisan politics because he just I think he just felt like he, he, he flew too close to the sun. And, and which is interesting because that was the time when evangelicals were really pushing toward partisan politics in the, in the late 70s with Jerry Falwell and uh, some of those figures. Uh, Billy Graham actually was receded from the, you know, that the real hard edged um, political uh, views. And he actually became a little more moderate on some issues as he got older. But his son, Franklin, has gone the other way. He's become more hard-edged about um, about partisan politics. And if you follow, I don't know if you follow his Twitter feed, but it's it's extremely, uh, extremely partisan. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I do. <laughs> yeah. I do. So you don't have to. No. Uh, you know, yeah. one of the things I was really curious about, you you this is the book is such a deep dive in and and really in depth wide ranging goes way back but also covers a lot of the contemporary figures you know as as you described yourself you're a, a person of faith but not an evangelical right. i was curious how you put together uh, the, such a such a detailed portrait of all of this yeah it it was really difficult for me to uh, there there's so many interesting characters the evangelical world especially now and and, and uh, it was the, the, one of the biggest challenges of this book was who to leave out uh, because because there, if I if I really if I wrote about every major evangelical leader it would this would be a six hundred page book and I didn't have the uh, the appetite or the ability to do that so um, uh, so I tried to focus on the ones that that seemed like they were the most entrepreneurial and they and, and the ones that were the most um, that kind of reflected the themes of the book the best. So I, uh, so I, I yeah, I wrote about Kenneth Copeland, who uh, he's been around a very long time. He was uh, uh, he was Oral Roberts' uh, pilot uh, back in the uh, back in the fifties and sixties, and 
Copeland is a uh, prosperity gospel preacher. He has a uh, compound outside of Fort Worth, Texas, and he has his, uh, he has a private airport, and he has a, a mansion uh, which he uses his parsonage exemption to uh, to to pay for that. And he has uh, television ministry, and he's also a very uh, hard-edged uh, conservative. He's he, he's he's a he's a fascinating character, and, and and I think one of the questions people ask me, you know, friends and colleagues, you know, as I was doing this book, is like, why do people give him money? You know, why are people like him money? And it, it it's actually a, a calling card for these people to have a private jet. You know, he uh, Copeland uh, asked his followers for money so he could upgrade his private plane. You know, he's a Gulfstream five that's worth uh, probably about $20 million. And he actually put up a video on YouTube saying, you, you paid for this Gulfstream five. Isn't this, isn't this marvelous? And, Oh, God is blessing us so abundantly. And, uh, but I think people, Americans see that or his followers see that and they see, Oh, well, you know, this is a, this is a down home kind of guy. And look at, look at where, you know, he's, he's living in a mansion and he's rich and I can be rich too, if I follow him and, uh, and I can, and, and we live, we live in such an aspirational culture and in, in America. And, and I, and I think people, they look to these preachers and they see preachers dressed, you know, and, in in these fancy sneakers there's a there's an instagram uh, account called i think preachers and sneakers and it uh, is it's photographs of preachers with uh, their yeezys and their uh, their expensive nike thousand dollar nikes and their their fancy clothes i, I mean I, I think a lot of us think that you know uh, clerics should be uh, should, should take a vow of poverty they shouldn't give they should they should dress simply they shouldn't live in fancy houses but i I think that also that ties into the entrepreneurial culture where it's, uh, I think in our country, we do worship uh, rich, we, we worship rich people, we, uh, we aspire to be like them. And when you, when you, when you braid that with a biblical message that, you know, you have wealth coming to you because you're giving a, you're giving a, don you're giving us a donation and that seed will grow into something, uh, something special and something wonderful that you've been wanting something material and not not just spiritual and that's that's a really powerful message yeah now as part of your work you, you did uh, you mentioned that you visited a, a number of different churches evangelical churches right um and, and it should be noted that uh, you also point out that you were very warmly received uh, uh, you know pretty consistently mm -hmm. did you get a sense did you get to talk to any uh, any of the folks uh, ch churchgoers that um uh, of what the attraction was. Uh, I know it's it, it was probably different, um, very different churches, but like, you know, for example, uh, what draws them to someone like a Robert Jeffress, for example? Yeah, like I went to nine different uh, evangelical churches, all different uh, sizes, you know, mega churches, as well as forefront churches. I tried to, you know, cover the gamut of some different denominations and some that are not denominational. And, you know, and I would talk just informally with people, probably, you know, 50 or so people in total, and just, uh, I would get there early and try to get a sense of the place. And I would just say, you know, uh, so what, 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 it, it's the same question you asked, Corey, you know, what, what brings you here? Why, why do you keep coming back? And almost universally, the answer was the, the community, you know, they, mm -hmm. they, they, they find a community here. And that's what evangelicals do so well. They really make you feel welcome. You know, you, you, you go to, you know, you go to these churches and there's a welcome desk, you know, and there's signs that say, we're glad you're here. You know, at that, that, that Saddleback, I saw that. 
and there's always someone there and they're in there and you you go there and they they, they take it if you want to take a tour of the campus you can uh, they give you a they give you tchotchkes like uh you know a, a, a cup or a, a you know a cooler or fresh baked cookies <laughs> yeah they give you uh, I, you know they have, some of these places have coffee bars that are like yeah. starbucks you know they're they're amazing you know it's not just a uh, you know, an air pot of coffee. It's like they're they're making actual you know coffee drinks uh, from scratch. Um, so they're they're very good at that, and, uh, and and they're very good at getting people uh, connected. You know, the lot of, you know the, the days of the baskets. You know, where the <laughs> where the collections are taken. Those are long gone. And see one basket in my vo- in my voyages. They uh, you can download you can download an app and you can give you know give your tithing uh, through your through your app or uh, you know it's all automated um they're they're real they're high tech you know they're they're entertaining the 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 musicianship is outstanding there's lighting i mean it is it's almost like going to a like a know, broadway a, show a, exactly like a broadway show it's theater style seating in a lot of cases and you know a lot of people were surprised too when i said uh you know some of these churches there were no crosses there were no um there's no statues of jesus there's no there's no stained glass windows and you could be walking into a, you know, a, a convention center, you know, and then that's, and that's by, that's on purpose because they don't want to turn people off. You know, when you run a business, you know, the largest market are the people who don't buy your product, you know, so they want to appeal to the unchurched people as much as possible. And, um, and that's, uh, that's why they've been able to grow. You know, these, these churches are so growth oriented um, that they, they want people that they don't want people to feel confused when they go to a service and, you know, if you go to a Catholic service, there's there's all these prayers that people are saying, and you know, if you're not if you've never been there, you don't know what they're saying. And then there's times you kneel and times you stand up, and and then the genuflecting. And it's in in a lot of these churches I went to, it was it was I didn't feel like I was uh, I was lost, you know. And it was yeah. they were fairly. And then the messages from the pastors are very uh, down to earth, you know, how to be a good dad, and you know, and how to have be a better husband, and you know, just just uh, very simple everyday messages, and that they, they they really tried to speak to people in the common uh, the common vernacular uh, instead of talking about you know complex uh, theological questions. Yeah. Um, so I I, I found uh, you know I found them very uh, very welcoming, and um, you know, but like I've like you must have read my blog post where it's like you know I'm a white middle aged man you know who's heterosexual, and I am a person of faith, so. And I have to, I have to, I have to reckon with that and say, well, you know, if I was not those things, then maybe I wouldn't feel so comfortable. Maybe I wouldn't have been welcomed as, as, as well as I was. So, you know, you do have to, you, you do have to take stock of that. I have a theory about that and it's based on personal experience. Um, are you, are you interested in my theory? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so I think oftentimes uh, if, if you're someone who, looks different or comes from a different background, there is, at least on the front end, an enthusiastic, warm embrace. Um, But what I found over the long term, because I came from a Jewish background, uh, I grew up in a very observant family and became a Christian in my late 20s. So when folks at my new church, I was going to an evangelical church called Grace Baptist here, uh, about I don't know, two or 3000 people would attend, uh, you know, over the course of four, four or five services every weekend. And what I found was I became everybody's token Jew. <laughs> you know, it's like yeah. we, we won one for Jesus, you know, kind of thing. <laughs> um, and and similarly, I have um, on a 
very small sample size, African-American friends who um, went to that church uh, who experienced something similar. Um, you know, mm -hmm. you do see a lot of white faces at that particular church and also a lot of the kinds of churches that you're describing. Um, but but it's almost like um, it's kind of like how Trump, you know, he finds one black face uh, in, in the crowd. And wh yeah. where's my and he, I just I, <laughs> yeah. it's hard for me to even use the language, but, um, <laughs> you know, but you, yeah. you become the token in a way. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That, that I could see that. And. You know, I live in San Diego, so it's a very diverse community. So, you know, these churches were not all white, you know, and, and the, there's one church in particular is the the Rock Church. It's probably the largest uh, mega church in San Diego County. It's It was started by Miles McPherson, who was a former San Diego Charger. Okay. He's still the, he's still the, he's still the, the top pastor there, and I interviewed him. So he's African-American. And um, in, in the, you know, the, the, the service I went to, it looked like going to a Padre. It was like going to a Padres game. It was, oh, very, wow. it was, it was a lot of different ages and uh, people dressed very casually and in and, and, and a good racial mix as well. So, yeah, and I would say, you know, largely the churches were, were white that I went to. Uh, the, the congregations I went to were white, but not not totally. I mean, it was there was some you know, more diversity than I think people would expect, you know, who, who aren't familiar with or, or just don't. They just know evangelicals as a, you know, as some kind of political term. But but if they, yeah. if they actually went to a service, I think they probably would have been surprised by how, how diverse it was. Did you talk to folks uh, at the churches that you went to about some of the political issues? You know, for example, I'm curious um, if you talk to folks uh, in an all white church about things like Black Lives Matter or critical race theory. And if it was any different at a church like McPherson's in, in San Diego, that is more culturally and, and racially diverse. I, actually, I did notice some difference. That's a, that's a very astute question where Miles McPherson uh, felt like that he thinks that politics should be de-emphasized. He, think he thinks that evangelicals have become too, too fixated on, on politics which is interesting and then and then but there's another church i went to in san diego it's a southern baptist uh, convention church and the pastor was 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 extremely hard-edged politically and i i sat with some some it was a largely white congregation i sat next to next to some people i talked to them before the service and just about kind of their religious background and <laughs> the pastor delivered a, a sermon that was that was essentially uh, saying that liberals are evil and, and and talking about you know the dangers of critical race theory and they want to stop us from you know from 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 having a having a meeting here and it's or having a congregation and i just uh i had spoke with the people i sat to afterwards and i said boy i really i really felt felt like that was inappropriate to call a group of people evil because they believe in something you know a different political perspective and and the people answered well you know they are trying to take this away from us and i said who's they you know, yeah who's they so we we i mean i walked in here nobody stopped me from there's a thought there's a couple thousand people here like i don't i don't see any uh bar you know anybody uh barring our entry but i think there is there you know some evangelicals do have a siege mentality of that they're 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 always under attack and they're always under assault and especially from the mainstream culture and i I did hear some talk about critical race theory, and uh, uh, and so these are people that pick up these messages. I think on Fox News and on Facebook and social media, and they and, and it's um, and they, and they do feel like that their their way of life is under attack, and and it, that goes pretty deep into evangelical evangelical history. This feeling of of being 
uh, under under assault. And, and, and you know, in in some ways, that's justified. Uh, you know, there there was uh, you know there there was a, a sense you know, especially in the you know 30s and 40s and 50s, uh, main you know mainline Protestants uh, looked down on evangelicals, and even if evangelicals looked down on Pentecostals, you know, as snake handlers and uh, you know that these were people speaking in tongues, and that's some that's not something that's that that, that you should do. Um, so there there, there is there, there is that siege mentality that um, that that exists for sure. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, you point to it's it's been going on for a long time. I, there was one yeah. account early in the book where you're talking about the Scopes trial, and and uh, I guess um, I didn't realize that the the play was accurate to where in the play. Um, uh, and here at the wind, wind yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. where that character, the William Jennings Bryan character, like has a heart attack and basically dies right there. Right, right. I didn't realize that uh, William Jennings Bryan actually died a few days after. That's right. Yeah. That's but right. he um, uh, you you account at, at I guess it was funeral or memorial service. Uh, a lot of folks there were talking. They, um, they were speaking about the evils of journalism and science and <laughs> academic experience, yeah. and we're still talking about that we're now. Still, we're still talking about that and the whole the battle over textbooks and in school. I mean, that that, that trial was again almost a hundred years ago, and yeah. we're still we're still fighting about what are we you know what are we teaching our children? Why are we teaching our children about you know the critical race theory or why are we teaching our children about evolution? We should be teaching them about creationism too. And um, in the in these in those these the battles were really intense in the '70s and uh, it, it, as well. So it's like the, the yeah these 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 cycles just continue to re- repeat, and it's uh, it, it is surprising how little uh, we seem to we, we seem to advance from uh, <laughs> from the past. So fast forward to the '50s. I didn't realize how explicitly anti-segregation um, and, and how averse uh, I'm talking about Jerry Falwell Sr. Yeah, how averse he was to uh, civil rights leaders like Dr. King. I didn't realize how explicit he was about that. You know, he on the one hand, he did. Uh, I think you quoted him in your section on um, your your chapter on culture. Uh, what, what's the name of the chapter again at the end of the book? Culture, culture Cla- clash. Yeah, culture clash. Yeah. Where the two quotes, uh, where in '65 he says basically right. leave politics alone, but by 1980 he's all in. You know. But I didn't realize um, even having that stance in in the mid '60s, he was still pretty explicitly anti segregation. Yeah, that that was something that surprised me too. I I uh, I mean, Jerry Falwell was 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 uh, a son of the the rural of rural Virginia, so uh, he grew up in a, segreg- a segregated community. Uh, his, the, back then, the churches were were all white that he was in. And and I think there was a sense uh, that what that quote you mentioned from 1965, you know, the context of that is he was responding to the Bloody Sunday in Selma in 1965, the struggle for you know that John Lewis was attacked and other civil rights marchers were attacked for to press for voting rights in Selma. And he his follow attitude is well, preachers should not be involved in politics at all. You know, get out of the focus, streets, I think he said. Get out of the streets. They need to focus on, you know people's individual relationship with Jesus. That, that's what pastors do. They should not be involved in all these social problems. And, and, and then, yeah, then his attitude changed uh, 100, you know, 180 degrees uh, in, in, by the late 70s, where he was getting involved with, you know, these anti-gay uh, legislation. And he was, he started the moral majority. 
and gotten you know involved and explicitly involved in partisan politics. Uh, and, and and I think there was a sense that they didn't want uh, these churches felt like they should they should not not be told how to run their their enterprises. They 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 should be government shouldn't tell them what to do. And so a lot of these churches responded to the civil rights movement by opening up what they called segregation academies. Um, and they and these were all white schools in yeah. the '60s. And that that was a direct. Um, that was their direct response to the civil rights movement of the '60s. Is we're gonna well, we're gonna set up our own schools, and uh, and that's that's that. And uh, and they started them by the thousands in, in into the '60s. And then they, and these churches ran into trouble in the '70s because the IRS looked at that and said, "Well, you know, we'll, we'll take away your tax exemption if you refuse to admit, uh, you know, any you refuse to admit any uh, non-white students." And that became a real battle in the '70s. That was one of the things that led Falwell and others to be involved more explicitly in politics because they they blamed the Carter administration for that, even though that started under under Nixon and was continued continued under Ford, they blamed Carter for uh, for pursuing that. Um, and they felt like that was an infringement on their religious liberty, that they're being told what to do. And they didn't feel like that was right. Yeah. You know, it, it does make me wonder, I, I think a lot of folks that I, I go to church with might look at those accounts of how Falwell was back in the in the 50s and and maybe look at it with a, a critical eye and say well hopefully he evolved on race because we're certainly not there now but in a way we are there now and I just wonder if we're able to recognize the ways that we are um uh contextualizing or recontextualizing issues and we, we've mentioned a couple black lives matter for example or critical race theory um that uh we're we're perpetuating some of the same proclivities that that it's easier for us to see in a in a, a jerry falwell uh 50 60 70 years ago yeah i think that sometimes we can we look back at history and say well that we wouldn't do that you know that these people are right. those people those people were racist or they were sexist or they were and, and I and I think that you know we need to take stock of how we we really are, and that those strains, those those strains still exist today, uh, and and we have to be humble and not and not think that we're somehow superior to people in the past because those those elements are still with us, and um, and, and we have to recognize that. Yeah. Now, one of the things I found really interesting was how um, media or platforms were really utilized by what you know what you call evangel evangelical entrepreneurs could you describe for us a little bit about like the advent of radio for example and then you know when tv came on the picture so to, so to speak um could you describe uh, some of that evolution and how that's how that's um influenced uh, how figures have come into uh come into view sure yeah so evangelicals were uh were really, were really the, the stars of the uh of, of the radio era, you know, of the 20s and 30s. You know, I write about uh, Amy Semple McPherson in Los Angeles. Uh, so she had, she uh, she founded her own, uh, her own church in Los Angeles. She owned a radio station. Uh, she was the first female, the first American woman, I think, to own a radio station. So this is in the early 1920s. And they, and so she owned the station, she operated out of her church and she was, uh, she was a radio uh, a pastor and, um, and she had a she gained a huge audience from that, and and then uh, others of that of that era were fundamentalists were among the most popular people on the radio uh, in the twenties, thirties, and forties. And I think what they what evangelicals were able to do fundamentalists they were mostly called back then is they were 
they just were able to connect with people in an individual way through the radio. Radio is such an intimate form of communication, and they just—they just were really adept at connecting people. And you, you know, you read—you know—I've read some letters from people just talking about how they just felt like that that this preacher was sitting in their living room, and they just felt a connection they'd never felt before. Maybe they—they you know, may have been old or unable to go to a church, or they lived too far away from a church, and, they, and it really was a was a lifeline for people and then as you got into the television era in the you know the 50s 60s 70s it was even more that way it was even more intimate and you know this person is actually in your living room you know oral roberts or uh billy graham uh, people like that and they and, and evangelicals were more were willing to take chances on on new media uh new forms of media more so than you know more the more mainline protestant churches uh you know they're they're just more willing you know they're more willing to, to to just work within the bounds of what they have. Where I think evangelicals are more willing to, you know, they, they to fulfill the Great Commission. You know, you want you want to spread your message as widely as possible. Uh, that's that's such a big uh, element of evangelicalism. And they and and they and they saw radio and television, and now uh, the internet is a way to do that. Social media. Um, they're like I said, like they uh, during the pandemic, they they had. Uh, services through through uh, uh, Zoom or through their websites or through their apps, uh, through Twitter, YouTube. I mean, they were they they were very quick at adapting to the new reality, and and, and where you see other you know, other churches, not so much. And um, so they, you know, it, the, these churches are just so growth oriented, and they 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 want to they want to find the, the largest audience they can, and they and media is the way to do it. Yeah. Yeah. Now we, we mentioned this uh, briefly a second ago and um, uh, the chapter titled culture clash. So there was a 180 degree shift in, in um, uh, Jerry Falwell senior regarding his involvement in politics between 65 and 80. What were some of the things that shifted for him personally and that drove these, these growing movements uh, so like, like the moral majority that, that he founded later? Yeah, one of them was what I mentioned about the IRS scrutinizing uh, churches for uh, for, segre- for having segregated uh, academies. Uh, that that was that was a, that was an element of it that they felt like they felt like they were under assault from the government. Uh, another thing was there was some uh, Supreme Court rulings about school prayer that that a lot of evangelicals didn't like in the 60s, uh, and then uh, you had Roe versus Wade in 73, although that was not a large, that was not a big issue for evangelicals uh, at, at the time. It was interesting. I looked, I looked at the newspaper coverage of that that whole week, and I tried to find quotes from uh, non, the Catholic Church was very much against abortion at that time, and they had been fighting against decriminalization efforts in California and other, in New York. But uh, I didn't realize that LBJ died that day. Yeah, yeah, that's that. That was one of the issues. Is that yeah, Lyndon Johnson died and sort of blew that off the front page. And then there was the Paris peace talks uh, uh, with the war in Vietnam, which was an enormous story that week as well. So it was interesting. Where Roe versus Wade was actually probably the third most covered story of that week. But there, were, there was the, the reaction from the evangelical world was very muted uh, about about abortion in 1973. I think as time went on, I I think that uh, they started realizing that this is an issue that maybe we can align with Catholics and work uh, in in the Republican Party and then combine it with there was the spread of pornography in the 70s. That was an important issue. And then the gay, uh, the the efforts against uh, gay rights also was tied into that. So I think they started seeing 
uh, some of these cultural issues could be useful uh, in the political realm in the 70s. So that, that, that there was, a, you know, it took, a, it took some years, but um, I, I think by the end of the 70s, there was a sense that uh, that evangelicals need to be involved in politics. They need they need to get involved in these issues that are coming up. And then with the rise of Reagan, there was it was a perfect uh, meeting of, of of two forces that uh, came together. Yeah, and then and then culturally too, you you deal a lot with um, some of the hallmarks of evangelicalism and how uh, how it ended up uh, being closely aligned with the Republican Party. Could you describe that a little bit? Yeah, I think you know historically, uh, evangelicalism is almost inherently conservative in, in, in their outlook. You know, individualistic. You know, and, and very suspicious of government action, suspicious of collective action, suspicious of unions. Very uh, patriotic, pro-American. Um, the American exceptionalism was a, was a, a really strong th- uh, theme of Billy Graham in the fifties and the Eisenhower era that we were an, we're an exceptional nation chosen by God to fight against the godless communists of the, of the, of Russia in the fifties and sixties. So the, the, the strains that were there with the Billy Sunday era as well in the twenties, I, I think when it became, it really was the, the fall well in the seven, in the seventies and into the eighties where, where it, it became explicitly a partisan and party affiliated. If you look at uh, 1976, the presidential election, you had Jimmy Carter. He, w- he was the first uh, evangelical. He was he, he's he's a southern he was Southern Baptist uh, running against Gerald Ford, who I, who I I don't I think he's a mainline Protestant. He's not evangelical. So he, that's such an interesting uh, thing because half you know half, the evangelical vote pretty much split in half. Half voted for Ford, half voted for Carter. And then you go to you go to 1980, and then Carter is on the ballot again, but he's running against Ronald Reagan, and he's much less popular. Carter is much less popular, and Reagan gets two thirds of the of the evangelical vote. That's such an interesting passage of time that 76 to 80, and that's when Falwell was really getting involved in politics. And I think I think that's when the Republican Party realized that if we can align with with these evangelicals and some ethnic Catholics. Uh, in, in Reagan Democrat, they became known as Reagan Democrats. We can we can pull away a lot of Democratic support uh, from from Carter, and, and it, it worked. So you describe some conservative principles: uh, small government, fiscal conservative, things like that. So he, here's here's the big question: What did evangelicals see in Trump? Yeah, that, that's such a that's such an interesting question, and that's what another question I got a lot from uh, friends and family. Like, what you know, how can how can these people who are so biblically centered, how can they support someone like Trump, who's who you know, has such a history of you know of of of, of, of uh, bad behavior? He's been divorced twice. He's 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 not. He doesn't seem too familiar with the contents of the Bible. Two Corinthians. Um, <laughs> yes, that's right. Yeah, and he actually, I think he actually said that at. Um, at Falwell's play, uh, yeah, Liberty, Liberty University, and there were some chuckles in the audience because this was uh, early on. I, I, you know, I interviewed. You mentioned Robert Jeffress earlier, and he's he's the pastor of a mega church in Dallas, uh, ten thousand members at least. He's also he has a radio program. He's on Fox News quite a lot. He's a very prominent pastor, and I, you know, I said, well, so you know, so it's two thousand, it's twenty fifteen, and you've got Trump running, and Ted Cruz, and Marco Rubio, and uh, so why do you pick? 
why do you choose to, to support Trump? You know, he was one, Jeffress was one of the first evangelical leaders to campaign for Trump actually during the primaries in 2016. And he just said, uh, Jeffress said, well, I just felt like uh, Trump had the best, had the best chance to beat Hillary Clinton. It was just a pure political calculation. A calculation, yeah, and and Trump Trump says that pretty overtly too that that it's a transactional relationship. Yeah, and Jeffress actually used that phrase too. He said uh, he said it's it's politics. It's a transactional relationship. You know, we got something from Trump, and that, that's how politics works. So it, yeah, it's um, I think they did. I, I don't. I'm not sure Trump was the number one choice of evangelicals in the primaries, but I think as be, as it become it became clear that Trump was going to be the nominee. Evangelicals rallied around him because they just saw that okay, he's it's going to be Trump, and we're just going to have to uh, we have to hold our noses. And and Trump is um, Trump is smart in that he understood that he had to have the support of evangelicals to win to win the nomination and then win the election. There was just there's no other there's no way to to win the to win the nomination in the Republican Party if you do not have the support of evangelicals and he was very close to uh, a woman named paula white um, yeah who's a mega church leader in florida and he the story of how he connected with her is very it's very uh, in very in keeping with trump he was he was flipping around the tv station one night you know, flipping around the channels one night and he came across paula white who's a petite blonde woman and very good on television he was just captivated by her and her message she's a prosperity gospel preacher uh, which you know ties into some of the trump ideas and um and he, he became, uh, she became his spiritual advisor. Um, so this is even before he was a candidate for president. And when he won, you know, she was as close to Trump as probably Billy Graham was to Richard Nixon. I mean, in terms of uh, being, in terms of the White House uh, years. I mean, she was, she was in the Oval Office quite a lot. She was uh, head of a, of a committee, a faith-based committee. So he he knew he needed to he needed to show that uh, that uh, he he had the support of evangelicals and 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 I think I, I spoke when I spoke to Jeffress you know he said that Donald Trump delivered you know he, he gave us three Supreme Court justices yeah and you know he sees uh, he he supports religious liberty and he's he's good on our issues and uh, so I think you know I think it's a bargain that they made and they were. And we'll see if they're going to make it again. I don't know. <laughs> well, yeah. So be, depending on what poll you're looking at, uh, yeah. what survey, seventy between seventy-seven and eighty-one percent of white evangelicals supported him in in twenty twenty, and still yeah. strongly do. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, uh, so you were doing some of your research uh, for the book when the insurrection on January sixth happened. What were some of the reactions you heard from various leading fi- figures in the evangelical world? Yeah, I, I didn't write too much about it because I didn't. Uh, I had to hand the, hand in the manuscript last fall, so I didn't want to get too deep into it because it was still a little unclear as to what what the forces were behind it. You know, the commission hadn't hadn't really started yet. Uh, the the house the house committee studying the January sixth, so I didn't talk about it too much in the book. But I, you know, I would I would say uh, it, it didn't seem to dent uh, evangelical support for Trump much at all. Uh, if you look at the polling. Uh, it did. It it, it 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 seemed pretty. It's been pretty steady, uh, even after that. Even after the you know, the revelations of the committee, uh, there's still there's still you know he hasn't. Trump has not lost his uh, core support. Uh, that that at least at least for polling. And like I say, we'll we'll have to see uh, if you know if he decides to run again, and you know if Ron DeSantis runs or if some other 
maybe maybe someone like Ron DeSantis might get more support from evangelicals. I think we'll just have to see. If Trump doesn't run, my prediction is Marjorie Taylor Greene's going to be running for president. <laughs> well, I, I was reading a story about her the other day, and there was a she was saying, uh, well, there's there's rumors that that Trump might pick her as as, as uh, his running mate next yeah. time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it won't be Mike Pence. <laughs> I heard an interesting uh, theory from uh, Michael Cohen, Trump's former lawyer. Uh, he he was his lawyer for over a, right. a decade, and he said he Trump's not running. Uh, he, oh. he knows Trump better than just about anybody. He said Trump's not running. The reason is that the grift will be over. He's making more money now than he ever has before uh, because uh, he's able to get, uh, I don't know, his, his super PAC or whatever. He's right. able to get hundreds collect. of millions of dollars that way. Yeah, I think I think the only the counter argument to that would be, though, if the, the day that Donald Trump says he's not running for president, that's when a lot of the attention goes away. Yeah, they, because it's like, well, he's not running, and yeah. he, he would still be involved, I'm sure. Yeah, but yeah, but when you're not a candidate, I think you would lose a lot of the attention. And he, he craves, he craves that attention, and he craves that. But he also, he, he may be afraid that he might lose. <laughs> so yeah. uh, there's there's that too. So uh, a couple more questions. So you, sure. you deal a lot with um, some of the contemporary mega churches. Uh, Saddleback is is one of them. Have you now this uh, some some things you did talk about Rick Warren? discussing his retirement and always um, um, saying uh, the 40 year mark, I think was when he was going to retire. But uh, this last June, he actually did step down. He, right. um, and he was replaced by Andy Wood. Uh, have you followed with any of those developments, by the way? No, I, I, I haven't. I mean, I've followed it just from reading, reading about it in, in the, in the uh, press, but um, yeah, I think that's, that's, uh, that, that's going to be interesting to watch uh, that transition because it's, one, one of the things in, with these evangelical entrepreneurs is that you often have, you know, w w just like with any business, you know, the founder of the business is a, usually a very driven person who started something from, I mean, Rick Warren started from nothing, you know, and he built one of the largest churches in the country and he has one of the best selling books you know, ever, ever been printed. And, and I think it's hard for a lot of these people to step aside and, and see it go to somebody else. And we'll, I, I think Rick Warren probably has the discipline to, to do that. And I think he understands that, uh, you know, sort of that business principle where you, you shouldn't, the, the, you shouldn't be the, you shouldn't choose your successor. You know, you should, you, you shouldn't hand it off to your son or, or your wife or something. You should, you should have some, another neutral uh, party select your successor, which is what he did. So yeah, it'll be it'll be interesting to see uh, how that how Saddleback evolves um, after after Warren because he was yeah you know, he he had been senior pastor for forty two years I think so. Uh, so if I can make a recommendation, there's an excellent investigative uh, journalist named Julie Royce, R O Y S, um, and her particular beat she's been tracking with um, a, a number of uh, up and coming pastors of of mega churches. Um, and others in 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 ministry. She's an evangelical. I think I believe that Julie identifies as an evangelical. Mm -hmm. um, but she did a profile on Andy Wood. It turns out that oh. uh, there are numerous credible charges of abuse along the lines of Mark Driscoll, uh, uh, famous from Mars Hill and uh, Mars Hill's demise. So, uh, but but look up. She's she's an excellent yeah, journalist. I'll read that. So, but th so some of these charges, some of this came out after. Saddleback hired Andy and they did, they said they did a, an internal investigation, but the way that they did an investigation about these charges was uh, using the search firm 
the very search firm they used to find him in the first place, the search firm is the one that did the investigation to figure out if there was any merit to these charges. So it's, yeah, uh, that, that's going to be very interesting to watch, and that that's something that churches have had a difficult time uh, with transparency. You know, in, in, in they they have a hard time investigating themselves. Uh, yeah. you, you, if you're familiar with Willow Creek Church, sure. You know, I was going to ask you, about Bill Hybels. And- Bill Hybels is a great, yeah, and he was he, he was on a very uh, a parallel track with Rick Warren for a lot of yeah. their careers. They got started around the same time, and very very similar business oriented approaches and they both they both had consultancies that trained other other pastors and churches to basically follow their model of church growth um and he was also the founding pastor of this church and and he there there were sexual uh, misconduct allegations against him and they the church investigated and it was it, it was a botched investigation and he was very defensive. There was, I think there was a, a report, uh, investigative series in the uh, Chicago Tribune about that, and he was very defensive uh, when that when those stories came out. And then ultimately, he he stepped aside. And uh, I, I I tried really hard to find him. I I I cannot I could not find Bill Hybels. I really I I read his books and I wrote about him in in, in my book. And I was I I just I could not find the man. So I don't I don't know what he's doing now. <laughs> but yeah. um, he was a really important. Um, really important leader uh, in, in the evangelical world. I actually went to uh, Willow Creek as, as part of this book to go to a service. And uh, I think what's happening to that church is also very interesting too, because that's that was one of the largest church, I think that was the largest church in the country and, you know, 15, 20 years ago. And he would have these meetings, he would have these big uh, uh, meetings with Bill Clinton and Bill Gates. And he was a real, you know, he was a real kind of a big shot. And, and then it, it all went away. And so I went to the church and it was just, I mean, it was it was a church. It was a footprint that was far too big for what the church is today. I mean, it, it was it, 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 it really looks like an office park. You know, you, you drive up there and there's acres of parking lots. And and then this church, it looks like a convention center. And and you go in and, and I, you know, it had it had to have been a, you know, one tenth full. I mean, it was just really, really interesting. And, and I, you know, it was summer. So, people, you know, people don't go to church as much in the summer. But I just felt like. Well, wow, this church really uh, needs to, uh, you know, think about uh, think about its future because uh, it's it's it can't it can't go back to the way it was. I don't think. Yeah, you you talk about the Crystal Cathedral and how it's yeah. uh, it's being repurposed. And, yeah, and, you know, now it's a now it's a Catholic cathedral. Right, right. <laughs> Catholic um, Church bought it. Total coincidence. I passed by the um, that early. Um, what, what's the name of the lady that you mentioned before? Uh, the charismatic uh, oh, radio. Uh, yeah. Amy uh, Semple McPherson. Yeah, I just so happened to pass by that church. That yeah, you know, yeah, it's a Echo Park. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I and that, when I saw it, I the only reason I recognized it because I read your book. Oh, <laughs> yeah, and I, I have oh, a picture of it. It hasn't changed much in not uh, much in hundred years from the outside. Yeah. I mean, it's uh, yeah, it's in it's in uh, Echo Park and uh, yep, in, the, yep. in LA. Yeah, um, it's so funny because I, I I wouldn't have taken note of it otherwise that's but so i saw this rounded sort of uh coliseum like building yeah, like yeah. oh that's the church he's talking about <laughs> that's um, cool but i was curious w- what do you think are some of the causes it's it's an all too frequent fall from grace type story of, of these evangelical leaders w- what do you think are some of the causes of that I, I think a lot of it is you know a lot of these churches are husband and wife operations or their family operations so there's there's a lot of uh there's not a lot of independent scrutiny and, yeah. and they and, and also they don't they don't have to uh report their 
uh, they don't have to fill out certain IRS forms like other nonprofits do. And, um, and, and I think there's a real, it's a real temptation to uh, use the church's finances for your own purposes. And, and I think the, the lines between the church and your personal life are, are non-existent. You know, the, 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 you are the church and, and there's no dividing line, just like a lot of businesses. You know, if, if you run your own business, sometimes it's hard to know what the line is between your, you know, your personal finances and your business finances. It, it, it uh, blur. It's, it's a very blurry line. Uh, I think that, that that's an issue, uh, and, and I and I and I think it's like I say that there's a there's a real succession problem that we really saw that with the Crystal Cathedral in Orange County, where you have a really strong, a very strong-headed, a very strong-minded person who founded this church again out of nothing. He, he didn't have even have a church when he moved out to California. He would he had services at a drive-in movie theater, and there wasn't actually a church that he that he worked worked out of for for lots of years. And so he built this, you know, this beautiful uh, cathedral and, and this campus and, and the, the Hour of Power television show that a lot of people of a certain age might remember. Uh, it was it was one it was probably the most popular radio uh, or, uh, television uh, program, religious television program for years. And he didn't want to you didn't want to step aside, you know. And, and uh, he, he got older, and he and he just didn't want to let go of the reins. And I think uh, and then he, he finally did. And I interviewed his son. Uh, uh, Robert Schuler and and he just you know his son described uh, you know that, that you look around the board and it's you know it's a it's a it's their their in laws their their uh, you know his his wife was still was on the board and it was just a lot of self dealing and a lot of not a lot of financial control so Schuler's son tried to tried to instill you know accounting practices that are you know normal for nonprofits and. The rest of the family didn't want that. You know, they liked they liked it the way it was. They had they had nice salaries. They had they had all the benefits uh, that you could ever want. And then uh, Schuler's son got pushed out, and now the, the church went into bankruptcy. And now it doesn't uh, it, they had to sell off the campus to the Catholic Church of all of all things. So uh, it's uh, it, it's just that succession problem can, can is a real is a real issue for these churches and these ministries. You know, we've yeah. seen it with with Jerry Falwell Jr. I like I mean he's had plenty of uh, <laughs> plenty of issues. Uh, <laughs> uh, so wow. it's um, yeah it's it, I think it's just that there, there, there just is no uh, there's no uh, independent um, uh, structure you know for these churches. I mean I think when they're just their husband and wife operations and their family operations, I think that's where they run they run into problems. Yeah yeah. Well, listen, I I really enjoyed the book. It's it's a super super enjoyable read. It reads if, if folks enjoy good journalism and good writing, uh, but also in particular on the subject matter, um, I can't recommend it highly enough. It is Soul Winners: The Ascent of uh, I'm reading upside down. So wait, I'm trying to do it in the camera so we can get a <laughs> shot of it. Uh, Soul Winners: The Ascent of America's Evangelical Entrepreneurs. Um, the author is David Clary. So David, what's next for you? Well, I'm uh, I'm one of my passions in life is also uh, baseball. So I'm uh, I'm I'm thinking my next book will be baseball related. I'm not quite sure how it's gonna how it's gonna be shaped, but uh, I've always wanted to write a book about baseball. I have some ideas, but I need to do a lot more thinking and research before I can uh, before I know exactly exactly what I'm doing. So I'm trying to. I, I'm guessing that I, I figured in in football you're like a Buffalo Bills fan, right? From from Central New York. Yeah, yeah. I, I have a tortured uh, 
uh, history uh, with the NFL because I moved to Cleveland uh, oh. when right after the Browns left town for oh, Baltimore. Okay. Yeah. So there was that a couple year void there where there was no team, and then the Browns came back and they were terrible. And then I moved to San Diego, and I, I tried to be a Charger. I tried hard to be a Charger oh, fan, yeah. and I, I they, they had they had some great players uh, in my first few years here, and then there was. We know we want a new stadium, and then uh, and then they moved to Los Angeles. So now I'm, I I, I would say yeah, I'd say I'm just going to go back to get go back to my roots and just hope that the Buffalo Bills stay in Buffalo and don't move to Toronto yeah. or something like that. So who who do you follow in baseball? Uh, I'm a Yankees fan. Oh, uh, wait, my, just stop. Uh, <laughs> I'm not publishing this. This is, no, we don't need to talk anymore. How did you become a Yankees? Well, I grew up in central New York, so that's, okay, that's, this okay. is it's Yankee country. And it was difficult the years I was in Cleveland because uh, people in Cleveland hate the Yankees. So I uh, I, I stood firm. Uh, that was the those, of course those, they, those were the glory years. The people in Cleveland have character, of course. Yeah. They, no, I'm just to give you credit. Well, the Cleveland had wonderful teams back then too, but the Yankees oh, were that's always right. They had yeah. you know they were loaded, and the Yankees were just a little bit better, just like the way that the Astros are just a little bit better than the Yankees right now. Yeah. Um, so uh, I I take it you're a Dodgers fan? No, 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 no. Oh. I'm a Mets fan. Diehard Mets, Mets. fan. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah. 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 I grew up, the first game I went to, I think it was like 76 or so. My Aunt Rhoda and Uncle Jerry took me and my brother to uh, to Shea Stadium, Old Shea. Uh-oh. And um, it was a game they uh, that there was a pregame exhibition, and it was the Mets' wives playing a softball game against the cast of Happy Days. <laughs> <laughs> so I got my You're, picture with the yeah. bronze and wow. You don't get, you don't get more seventies than that. That's uh <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Seaver was still on the team. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah. But uh, you know, obviously the next year, but you know, as a teenager, the, the Mets were really fun to, to follow the 84, oh, yeah, 85, yeah. 86, 86 year. Yeah. That was the, the yeah. last world series championship. Don't remind me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The two- 2000 was uh, I remember that World Series very well. <laughs> that, yeah, yeah. Uh, 2000, 2015 were decent seasons. Yeah. This season, the regular season, was a great season. Yeah, I was because I, I like the Padres. I'm from San, I live in San Diego, so I, I I follow the Padres really closely. And I was like, oh my god, the Padres are going to get steamrolled by the the Mets. No, they you know, such great, they have such great starting pitching, and they're going to. I was I was worried about that series because. Uh, the, the Padres really handled them very well. It was one they of the teams I mean, that won series I, against the Mets in the regular season. That's that's true. Yeah, the best of three series. I mean, any, anything can happen. I mean, it's uh, it's such a fluky. You know, yeah, like Scherzer, Scherzer had a bad, series. Scherzer oh, gave up four home runs, and I was you know, yeah. you're already down. You're almost you're almost dead. You just need one more win, one more win, and then you're. Baseball yeah. will be baseball. You give me Scherzer and Degrom in a three games starting oh, the first yeah. two games of a three game series. I'll take it every time. Oh but, yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. So heart, <laughs> my heart is breaking still. Okay. Last question. How can we find you online? Where can we find the book and all the other great work that you're doing? Oh yeah. So I, I have my own website and I, I, uh, I post a blog there and there's some, there's an excerpt of the book and some, some a little bit more, more about me. It's a uh, David Clary author, David Clary author.com. Dot com. Yeah. Yeah. And I'll be sure to put it in the show notes and stuff. So yeah. Yeah. And again, that'll be in the show notes okay. and, as uh, this was really great. It was great. great. I'm yeah, so happy, yeah. grateful for, no, I, I, you know, to, to have been able to read the book and learned a lot oh, more about yeah. this history. And it's uh, really insightful. It's a great oh, read. Thank you. So, uh, and it's, it's cool. It's like, this is one of the coolest things about doing this thing is yeah. that I, I'd be reading these books anyway. And now I get to hang out with the guy who wrote it. So yeah. Yeah. And then I get really to, cool. 
I get to follow your journey too, because I, you know, I wasn't aware of your podcast until you know a few months ago. Now I'm like, oh no, I have another uh, another podcast I can listen to, and another person I can follow on Twitter who's smart and interesting. And, oh man, and, and and these issues that I'm so uh, I'm so uh, fascinated about. So uh, so it's great for me too. That's awesome. Well, yeah. I really appreciate that. And, yeah. Uh, We'll have to uh, if I if I come down your way, I'll let you know, and and we'll uh, maybe take in a Padres game or something. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Sounds good. So, all right. Yeah. Well, thanks so much, Corey. I really appreciate you having me on and uh, taking the time to read the book. And yeah, you thought, bet. Thoughtful. Play truly was my pleasure. Oh, thank you. And as always, if you dig what we're doing here, please hit that subscribe button, leave a review and comments wherever you get your podcasts, and tell a friend about TPNR. We are easier to recommend than ever. It's www.politicsandreligion.us. That's w, make sure to put in the www.politicsandreligion.us. And don't forget to support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash politicsandreligion. Now go talk some politics and religion with gentleness and respect and have a great week. Thank you for joining us today. If you dig what we're doing here, it is super easy to follow us. You can go to our site, politicsandreligion.us. That's with the and spelled out, A-N-D. Politicsandreligion.us. And we're on all the socials, at TP and R pod. You know, TP and R pod for talking politics and religion pod. And here's a big way you can support us, by becoming one of our patrons. You can even become a producer or executive producer of our program and have a lot more say in who we bring on, the kinds of questions we explore, or just help us keep the lights on. But mostly, we really appreciate you giving us a listen. So for the whole team here at Talking Politics and Religion Without Killing Each Other, thanks for hanging out with us. We'll be back in a few days to do our little part in Tikkun Olam. Religion.